Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, November 9th, 2012. (laughs) This is going to be a (laughs) weird edition of Fighting for the Faith. I I think the first hour is going to be a musical. I (laughs) I don't even know how else to explain it. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there in the name of God, and we our goal is to help you to... Stop. Put Press the pause button and learn how to think critically and biblically regarding what people are saying regarding God. Now, okay, normally on Fighting for the Faith, in fact, I talk about this from time to time, is that every episode of Fighting for the Faith generally has an overarching theme. It has an overarching theme that I'm trying to work through. It could be a, a theological category. Um, it, it could, you know, it, things of that nature. It could be a major doctrine, you know, within the historic Christian faith, like the doctrine of original sin, or uh, you know, something to do with Christ. Th- things like that. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Proper distinction of law and gospel. These are the, you know, the different themes that I work through regularly here at Fighting for the Faith, and I generally try to put the program together in such a way that. Um, the different things that we're working on or the angles that we look at when we listen to a particular pastor or preacher or teacher or somebody say something uh, works in with those themes. And then from time to time, we have leftovers. Okay, we have a program that could only be described as scraps, that there's no particular theme. And when we do those programs, listen, it's like throwing oatmeal against the wall. And when we do those kinds of programs, I have no idea what's going to happen. It's just one of those things where it's like, okay, these are... This is what we've got. This is what we're going to do. And I have no clue what's going to happen with those programs. And um, today is one of those programs. Today is one of those programs. Let me put it to you this way, okay? Um, We're going to begin with William Tapley. That's where we're going to begin. And because of how bizarre the first hour is going to be, 
we are going to have to end the week off with a good, solid, and I think timely uh, sermon, a chapel sermon by Dr. Albert Moeller. Um, you, you know, listen, you know, with everything that's going crazy out there politically, not just in the United States, but around the world, uh, the sermon that we're going to be listening to in the second hour will re-anchor us back into sanity is, is probably the best way of putting it. So I, <laughs> um, I, I need to warn you today. First hour is, you know, I'm I'm looking at what we're going to be covering, and all I can say is that it's going to be weird. And I, like I said at the opening of the program, I think the first hour is a musical today. That's just all I'm going to say. I'm not even going to tell you what we're going to cover. We got some bizarre things. I got a William Tapley update. I got a Stephen Furtick thing regarding Oprah. I've we're going to officially before the end of the first hour, we're going to officially change our update music for um, James McDonald. Yes, no kidding. I mean, it, it doesn't happen very often here at Fighting for the Faith that when it comes to a, you know, a prominent person who's featured regularly here at Fighting for the Faith that we end up, you know, changing their update music. But uh, the news has come out regarding something pertaining to James McDonald and some people on his staff that requires us to change the update music for James McDonald. So, all I can say is please make yourself comfortable. Take all of the proper precautions. I will play our standard warning today for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And then we're going to get into it. it listen, if, if you fall off a of bicycle, if you're on a ex- piece of exercise equipment, you know, like a treadmill or something like that, and you end up doing a face plant and being shot out the back of the thing and up against the wall, you've been warned, okay? <laughs> That's all I can say is that you have been warned well let me make sure that you that you're warned even more and then we'll get right into it here we go warning fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities operating heavy deadly equipment playing farmville or any time-wasting brain-numbing activity for sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Great, it starts with an earthquake. Sing along, it's gonna be a musical today, first hour. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. 
And I feel fine. Bum, 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 bum. All right, so uh, those of you who follow us and <laughs> listen to the program regularly know that William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, and co-prophet of the end times is a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith. And I <laughs> got to tell you, um, he's <laughs> in like his best stride ever now that Obama has won the <laughs> election. Uh, it's, this, is, this is the worst thing that could have happened to William Tapley. I want every one of you to know this, that Barack Obama winning the election has guaranteed that for the next four years, William Tapley, should he continue to tarry here on this earth, will hit like new highs, lows, I don't know how to describe it, in prophetic looniness. And this is just a foretaste of what it is that we get to listen to for the next four years from William Tapley. This is his latest video entitled The Antichrist Arrives Gangnam Style. Yeah, you heard that right. No joke. Here's William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, and his take on Obama's re-election. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. And incidentally, also someone who called the last two elections in the United States. <laughs> oh, there's William Tapley pulling out his prophetic swagger now. 100% correct. Can you name any other so-called prophet on YouTube who did the same? <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody. I don't think so. <laughs> but the election is over with. Many people have asked me to comment on it. But it's over and done with. And it is time to move on. And you Democrats, you who think that you could deny God three times at your convention. And that Satan will therefore let you have the leopard for four more years. You are sadly mistaken. In Daniel 7, the Antichrist follows the leopard, and he is the one who comes next. And Satan wants to bring the Antichrist in as soon as possible. Believe me, we have very little time left. And God is already announcing who the Antichrist is, just as he announced for the last four years who Barack Obama is. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, you could just see where this is going. Okay, yeah. William Tapley has um, an unusual gift, and um, that is, is that he is capable of seeing the prophetic messages in all kinds of things like, you know, sporting events and stuff like that. Wait till you <laughs> find out where his latest prophetic insights are going to come from. Oh, no. Let me continue. But he is doing it in a very interesting and different manner. Four years ago, Barack Obama was elected on the 4th of November. This week, he was re-elected on the 6th of November. Yeah. The number four announced the arrival of the leopard, but the number six this week is announcing the arrival of the Antichrist. Oh, no. Now, many times in the past four years, God has revealed who Barack Obama is through sporting events. <laughs> I'm going to lose it. 
I'm going to lose it. And I've already gone through that many times on this program, so I won't repeat myself. Thank you. This time, however, God has changed his plans. He is announcing the Antichrist through popular music. And I only discovered that myself this week. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, no, no. And I am passing along my information to you just as soon as I receive it. (laughs) How great of you. And in fact, I'm asking for help from my YouTube subscribers because very often you give me ideas which did not occur to me. (laughs) Do not feed William Tapley anything. And don't don't give him ideas. Don't encourage this. I am not very much into popular music. I know some of you probably are. So I am going to give two examples on this program, which are really amazing. But I am sure there are many others out there. So God is speaking now through popular music, not just sporting events. We're about to get prophetic insight from popular songs the the top 40 apparently the two popular songs i want to talk about on this program are gagnum style and call me maybe oh no as far as i can tell they are really the two most popular viral videos on youtube for the past several months if you search either of those titles you will find hundreds of thousands of results and many people are making parodies of those songs and they are very tuneful they are bouncy they're uplifting as far as i can see they are not like lady gaga or madonna videos i see very little nudity for example in them very little sexual perversion satanism and so on those things are usually featured in popular videos i don't hear any swear words for example i don't hear curse words So, I believe God is using videos of this type to get out his message because he knows they have a much wider popularity. More. I see. (laughs) No clue. I had zero clue that God was actually trying to send us a message about the Antichrist from Gangnam Style and Call Me Maybe. I was thinking that, you know... Uh, you know, it's Friday, Friday. I see. I could think. I would go with the idea that the Antichrist is speaking through that song. But people are going to watch them, including families, and these are the people God wants to get His message to. And I'm not saying the people who made these videos or who wrote these songs knew what they were doing. I don't think they did. It's like. For example, when Barack Obama used the word war 44 times in his acceptance speech at the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't think he counted those words beforehand. But God was giving us a message, just as he is doing with this popular music. So first, let's take a look at Gagnum Style. No. (laughs) Oh, man. The three most important words are Alpan Gagnum Style. And if you put those into English, I mean, those are Korean. If you put those into English, I believe the words that we want to study are open gangland style. All right. Now, because this is a prophetic insight given to the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times, it behooves me at this point to play for you a portion of um, this song so that you can listen for the message that God is speaking to us in it. So 
Here is a gratuitous Fighting for the Faith musical interlude. Um, PSY or size Gangnam style. Here we go. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Just so you know, I am Muppet dancing Gangnam style. Gangnam Style Gangnam Style Op Gangnam Style Gangnam Style All right that that should be enough uh, did you all catch the message from God in that <laughs> We now consider continue with our prophetic insights from William Tapley the 30 of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times to reveal the secret message from God regarding the Antichrist in a Gangnam style. Now, this is very interesting. The Antichrist is revealing himself through this phrase. Open means that this is the grand opening of the reign of the Antichrist. That is what the word open is referring Yes. How much do you want to bet his favorite cereal is Fruit Loops? Referring to gangland refers to the reign of the Antichrist because remember he is the lawless one as found in the Bible, and style of course indicates that he is not a man of substance. He is all froth and frivolity. He is not a serious human being. He is evil, and that is what open gangland style. Is referring to. Aha. Uh-huh. Let's double check. See if, again, see if this jives with your spirit. Gangnam Style Gangnam Style 
right, enough of that. Back to <clears throat> Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the... This is what we get to look forward to for the next four years. So now let's look at the other big viral hit of the summer on YouTube, and that is Call Me Maybe. Oh, I can hardly wait. And there are four very significant phrases in this song. Uh-huh. The first one... God is speaking to us through this song. Okay. One is, hey, I just met you. This is crazy. But here's my number. Yes, it is. Call me, maybe. Okay, so there's prophetic insights with this song as well. Again, I apologize for the musical today. <clears throat> Here is this song or a portion of it so that you can examine and listen for the prophetic message from God regarding the reign of the Antichrist. <laughs> Here's Call Me Maybe. That's enough there. We've we've now heard the message, the secret embedded message. See, back when I was a kid, uh, <laughs> I, you know, when people were trying to send secret messages through popular music, they, they would have to embed them into vinyl. And, and you can only hear those if you took your needle and then, you know, took your, your LP and then spun it backwards. You know, they call it backwards masking, apparently. So, so God, no, he, well, he doesn't do the backwards masking thing. No, he just embeds secret prophetic messages regarding the Antichrist in popular tunes. So tell us, <clears throat> William, um, what was God saying through that again? Let's look at those four phrases separately. Please. And see how God is revealing to us the name of the Antichrist. Hey, I just met you. <laughs> I am going to lose it. I am not going to be able to pull myself together here. Now, the I in this case refers to the Antichrist. <laughs> Please, somebody take the video camera away from Grandpa. And just meeting you means that he is revealing himself. This is the Antichrist's entrance into the end times. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew that this... Well, you know, that Call Me Maybe song was the Antichrist introducing himself to all of us. And this is crazy. Yes, it is. That's the seven years of tribulation. <laughs> Remember back in Daniel chapter number four, King Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy or insane for seven times. He lives among the beasts and eats grass. The beasts that he lives among are the two beasts of the revelation, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Those are the seven years of insanity, and this is when the Antichrist is going to reveal himself during those seven years. But here's my number, and of course, I think it should be obvious to you. <laughs> oh, it's 666, isn't it? What the Antichrist's number is. 
His number is 666. And he is not talking here about a telephone number. He is talking here about his number of the beast. I'll never be able to hear this song again the same from this moment forward. Which he is going to give to every one of us. That's what he means when he says, here's my number. And the last phrase is really the most interesting. So call me maybe. Yeah, nothing's registering. What's the prophetic insight with that? Now, he is not saying, call me on the telephone. No. What the Antichrist is saying here is, my name is maybe. Call me maybe. Now, what's interesting... Okay, so the Antichrist's name is maybe? ...is that Nostradamus also called the Antichrist Mabus. Boy, we're spreading the prophetic butter very thin here. Is there a connection between Mabus and maybe? So these two words for the Antichrist, Mabus and maybe, are not identical, but they are very similar. They both begin with the letters M-A-B. Now, I know some people say that Obama is the Antichrist, and they say that the B, A, and the M are reversed in his name, but that comes from Mabus. I tend not to believe that. I believe Mabus, maybe, or the Antichrist, is a different person. And I think the Lord is revealing to us that this is very close to what the name of the Antichrist will be. All right, so there you go, folks. I mean, if you were looking to figure out the name of the Antichrist, well... His name is maybe Mabus, and um, he was introducing us, uh, introducing himself to us in the Carly Ray Jepsen song, Call Me Maybe. <clears throat> I think it's time to go to a break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. children, and welcome to this week's Max Holiday's How-To Audio Update. I'm your host, Peter Braithwaite, and today's topic is How to Hug a Vampire. 
Demonstrating how to hug a vampire today will be performed by Dr. D.P. Gumby. Step 1. Find a vampire. This is by far the hardest step, and be sure to get your parents' permission before starting. Oh, look! A vampire! Step 2. Warmly greet the vampire from a distance. Hello, Mr. Vampire! Step 3. Approach the vampire. I'm coming your way, Mr. Vampire! Step 4. Attempt to hug the vampire. Come here and give me a squinch! Step 5. Have a relative call a funeral director. I'm dying! I'm dying! Ooh! Ooh! There's so much blood! Ooh! Step 6. If you're reading this step, then you obviously didn't attempt step 5. <laughs> well, it wasn't that fun. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Max Holiday's How-To Audio Updates. Be sure to email your questions into maxholidaybirdcagecedar at gmail.com. That's maxholidaybirdcagecedar at gmail.com, and maybe we'll answer them. Remember, that's theater with a T-R-E at the end. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny and the geek in your life will really enjoy them again piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek
warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith while drinking liquids in front of delicate electronic advice is contraindicated. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there in the middle of the homepage, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to help us with you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can do it the traditional way make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 time for a quick stephen furtick update sitting there thinking, you know, um, Chris, all that Joel Osteen stuff about standing in front of the mirror and saying things like, I am strong, I am talented, I am thin, I am manly, and things like (laughs) like that, Um, that, you know, that sounds a lot like the affirmations that Stephen Furtick teaches. And I would say, "Mm mm-hmm. And so the question comes up is, since Joel Osteen was recently on, I better turn off the music, hang Dun, 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 dun. All right, sorry, sorry, I was getting distracted. So the, the question comes up, the logical question comes up is, since Joel Osteen has been appearing on Oprah's Life Class, um, what is what has Stephen Furtick said regarding Oprah? Is there and has he tipped his hand as to what he thinks about Oprah? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a legitimate question. In fact, I'm beginning to think that maybe, just maybe, Stephen Furtick is you know 
trying to send out the vibe that he would like to be one of the people featured on Oprah's life class. How much do you want to bet within the next couple of years that Stephen Furtick will be sitting there on, on stage with Oprah for a life class? Well, here's Stephen Furtick, and <laughs> this is an official Elevation Church video entitled My Thoughts on Oprah. Now, here's the deal. Stephen Furtick preaches about Stephen Furtick, and everything's really about Stephen Furtick. And so what you'll find interesting from this video is that we're going to have to go a few minutes before we actually find out his thoughts on Oprah because, well, he's got more important people to talk about than Oprah. So here's Stephen Furtick from the official Elevation Church video found on YouTube entitled My Thoughts on Oprah. Here's Stephen Furtick. I think sending out the vibe that he would like to help lead an Oprah Life class. No joke. Here we go. And I'll tell you what, the story of this church for five years, you want to say, why has God blessed Elevation Church? Why has God, why has God continued to grow this church? How did this church have like 19 people when it started five years ago and had 9,292 people last weekend? How did that happen? Because uh, you're scratching, itching ears. I, the God, you don't need God for that. It just means you're a good marketer and you're telling people what they want to hear. It has nothing to do with God. In, in so many ways, it's all about the jars. Because the oil is something that only God can give. It represents his spirit, his presence, his power, his provision. His... Oh, there we go. This is an Elisha story. <laughs> now he's, he's, you can already tell what he's doing. I mean, it's so predictable. He's found a story about Elisha, and now he's going to allegorize everything and make it about the thing you got to do because apparently you need, you, need, you need to dig ditches, and God's gotta, you got to provide oil and you know, whatever. And only God can give the oil. That's the miraculous part. But I believe that one of the reasons we've seen God bless us so much is because we continue to get more jars, you know. We raise up volunteers, and, and we're building these campuses, and so... Yeah, I apologize. I know you're looking to hear, you know, Stephen Furtick's thoughts regarding Oprah. We'll get there, but you see, you, know, you got to remember, Furtick teaches about Furtick. This is all about him, so, you know, sorry. We'll, we'll get there. Oprah will get that honorable mention, so, yeah. just want to make an announcement to you as the pastor of this church here at the beginning of a new year. It's time to get more jars again. Man, it's time to get ready for the next thing God wants us to do. It's time for us to expand God's kingdom again. Right now, we're, we're looking for our fifth campus. We're, we're going to hopefully start a fifth campus this year. I don't know where yet, but I've never known where or how or when we were going to do anything. I just knew why we we're going to do it. Because Jesus Christ is the answer that this sorry, sick, heaving world needs completely agree why do you preach yourself then to, to to change a generation and i get so frustrated with people you know people have all these excuses why why you can't do it and why you can't build it and a few weeks ago i went to a dallas cowboys game yeah more stories about furtix i apologize we will get to the oprah his thoughts on oprah they they are coming you just got to wait because, you know, he's got more important people to talk about. I flew me out to see the, the new stadium, a $1.1 billion stadium. I mean, I, I, I saw it on TV, but just being there, it, it, was, it was sobering for me because I'm so limited in my thinking. I'm like, oh, well, 
you know, we just built this building, you know, we've done this stuff, we don't know what we can do anymore, and recession, and economy, and everything like that, and I get all this, I get all this stuff from people when I stand up and cast vision, you know, we're going to start a campus. Again, I apologize. I know he's talking about it. Trust me, we'll get to the open. You know, he stands up, he casts vision. Right, right. The, the Bible nowhere teaches that a pastor is to cast vision. This complete paganism, if you ask me. But Do you know the current state of the economy? Well, guess what? I was in a $1.1 billion football complex. Apparently, Ugh, Aren't you so blessed? Somebody didn't tell Jerry Jones. So I had this thought for all the people who are like, oh, we can't expand, we can't grow, we can't give, we can't. You mean to tell me that the Dallas Cowboys can run around in spandex pants on a $1.1 billion field and we can't build the church of Jesus Christ to preach the gospel? Well, see, see that's kind of the thing. Um, you don't. Yeah, you you talk about yourself. You you allegorize, mythologize, and narcissize all these biblical passages. And it's what's weird is uh, the biblical passages about Jesus. You make them about yourself. So yeah, so this kind of rings hollow. But by the way, we will be getting to his thoughts on Oprah shortly. Here he's he's got to kind of wind down about talking about himself. And the weird thing is, is he'll mention his thoughts regarding Oprah while talking about himself. Of the Son of God, the devil is a liar. Elisha said, don't ask for just a few jars. Think bigger. I taught you week one, dig a ditch. That's <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> completely futile spiritual endeavor. You don't need to dig any ditches. You don't have to burn any plows or anything. You don't have to go get any jars because you're not in that story. About preparing. This week I'm teaching you, get more jars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all about making a plan. Man, I'm tired of the church having less faith than the world. You mean to tell me MTV can have squillions of dollars? Yeah, because he, he he apparently needs squillions of dollars. I mean, just the maintenance on his you know Bieber haircut every week that he, that runs like in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. To pump filth into the bloodstream of your kids. And we can't build a gospel preaching church to teach them the values of the word of God. And you don't. Regardless of all the money coming in there, you actually don't do that. You must be crazy coming up in here thinking like that. I, I promise you, the Oprah thing is coming. You mean to tell me, excuse me for a minute, Oprah can have her own network? Now, here it comes. Are you So... <clears throat> See, I think the reason why the Elevation Church Network, uh, the official, you can find this, youtube.com forward slash Elevation Church video. That, this is an official channel from Elevation Church. This is, well, Furtick sending out the vibe that he wants to teach a life class. Because, I mean, if Osteen can do it, I mean, and Furtick teaches the same theology as Osteen, I mean, it's a match made in heaven. I mean, it's just, Stephen Furtick is kind of like a shorter and edgier um, over-caffeinated monster drink version of Joel Osteen. Which, by the way, I must admit, is very entertaining. I've been watching it and I've been enjoying it more than I would care to admit. I just need to admit that because I don't want to be a hypocrite. But you mean to tell me? So you, you like Oprah's network. <laughs> yeah. That's not a surprise at all. So there you go. I just wanted to share those thoughts with you.
<clears throat> from Stephen Furtick. I, I, it, it, you, you guys, you know, somebody was asking me. If, in fact, a couple of you asked me the questions, you know, regarding whether or not Stephen Furtick would be appearing on an Oprah Life class sometime in the near future. My prediction, my money says, yeah. Absolutely. I think Stephen Furtick will be appearing on an Oprah Live class. And I think the reason why the Elevation Church uh, uh, Network posted that on their YouTube is because uh, he's trying to get Oprah's attention to let, let her know. Yes, I love your network and I it, watch it all the time. It's great. And, of course, he believes the same theology as Osteen. So, hey, there you go. And talking about money. Time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. Don't want no lover. Don't want no kisser. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce. Hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Eldenero, want to be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. That green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of oot and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. Collector. I'm a paper bill inspector. I'm a savage for that cabbage man. To me, it's golden nectar. Pour that filthy lucre on me. Spread those loving germs upon me. Money, 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 money. And if they ever plant trees of enormous unum, I want to be the guy that they send out to prove Dr. Teeth from The Muppet Show and his rendition of Money. All right, talking about money-grubbing televangelists. Okay, <laughs> tinfoil pyramids hats on. You, they will protect you from what it is that you're about to hear. Here's one of the more famous televangelists out there talking about miracles that he's seen happen. And um, <laughs> broadcasting live from Israel, here's Robert Tilton. I'm just getting into a prophetic vein. He's not really saying anything, and that's not what the Bible means regarding te- uh, speaking in tongues. Someone with a digestive tract problems, quickly call. There's a miracle for you. Intestinal problems. Someone with similar intestinal problems. We've seen several people being delivered from the classroom bag. So there's a basurium. Disability with a child, some type of a learning disability. So, I mean, just calling out all kinds of healings here, you know. So many, many children healed. Now, I got a question. You know, when you see a televangelist do something like this, you know, you know, they're they, they're calling out miracles for different people. You know, you got you got colon problems. You got eyesight problems. You know, you got a problem with a, a gimpy leg and things like that. Now, here's the deal. Do the miracles come out of the television at the time of the original broadcast or... Um, if you like DVR it, I mean, do, do the miracles wait to um, pop out um, only at the time when it's you know when you when you because so, you don't want to miss out on your miracle, do you? You know, <clears throat> we continue. 
We've seen midgets grow. You heard? You've seen what? Hold <laughs> a second here. Gotta back that. <laughs> yeah, hang on a second here. Listen again. Type of a learning disability. We've seen many, many children healed. We've seen midgets grow. <laughs> okay, so, so uh, Robert Tilton's calling out a <clears throat> miracle grow miracle for a um, for a midget. <laughs> Just gotta play that again. disability with a child, some type of a learning disability. We've seen many, many children healed. We've seen midgets grow. We've seen arms and legs that stop growing because the growth cells that stop. I don't make this stuff up. Yeah, you do. We have thousands of testimonials documented by people's lives that have been changed. Yeah. <clears throat> so there you go. Uh, Robert Tilton uh, speaking in tongues, calling out miracles and claiming that they've seen midgets I told you this was going to be a bizarre episode of Fighting for the Faith. Now, sadly, I must announce, I must announce that this will be the last time that we will be using this music um, to uh, introduce a segment regarding, um, well, James McDonald. In fact, at the end of the segment, I will reveal to you uh, what the new music that we will be introducing James McDonald updates, uh, you know, for in the future. So... So this, those of you, this is like the passing of an era here at Fighting for the Faith. Sad to see it happen, but it, it, unfortunately, circumstances require that that's the case. So here is our last time playing Pink Elephants on Parade here at Fighting for the Faith to introduce a James McDonald update. <laughs> Look out, look out, pink elephants on parade, here they come, hippity-hoppity, they're here, and there are pink elephants everywhere. Look out, look out, they're walking around the bed, on the head, clippity-hoppity, parade, in braid, pink elephants on parade. What'll I do, what'll I do, what an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away, chase them away! I'm afraid, need your aid, big elephants on parade! Big elephants. Big elephants. All right. Now, I've been telling you, uh, the uh, there's a website out there that is like on the cutting edge of really busting open and revealing a lot of the shenanigans that have been going on regarding James McDonald, his leadership decisions and stuff going on there amongst the uh, the higher echelons of the Harvest Bible Chapel system. Unfortunately, um, this one is, well, it's kind of bizarre okay um and that's this is that new developments and evidence has come to light that james mcdonald uh well has a proclivity for um playing um high stakes texas hold'em poker now i'm not going to address the issue straight up and that's kind of at the point of this program here or this segment to address the issue of gambling okay I think we might, in order to do that subject justice, we would probably have to dedicate an entire segment to it because 
here's the idea, is that um, there is no clear prohibition in Scripture that says, thou shalt not gamble. So this is one of those things where it takes a little bit more of a nuanced look at the Scriptures to find out how Christians are to view such things, okay? And we'll have to save that for another episode. But that being the case, James McDonald, as a public teacher of the Bible, um, actually has come out and put his cards on the table, pun intended, uh, he has put his cards on the table regarding what he believes the Bible teaches regarding gambling. Okay, Now, I'm not going to sit here and say I agree or disagree. That's kind of not the point. The question that we need to be asking right now is, are his actions and the actions of people on his staff consistent with what he believes the Bible teaches regarding this, um, uh, and and or is he being hypocritical or waffling or things like that? Okay, you know, for instance, okay, <clears throat> let's say there's a guy out there, and we'll just say that he's the head of the evangelical uh, you know movement in the United States of America, and he rails against homosexuality. And then turns around and is caught, um, well, with a male prostitute, you would say <laughs> there's a problem there. You're right. I think that's kind of the, the idea that we have to take a look at here. And I really truly am hoping that uh, the story gets picked up by some bigger news agencies because I really think it needs to. So from the Elephant's Debt website, theelephantsdebt.com, they have a November 7th update, okay, um, and the, the update before that, um, they uh, had put out photographs of James McDonald in, you know, in casinos, you know, taking photographs with people who are professional uh, Texas Hold'em players for a living. So, I mean, they kind of get, get what's going on here. So I'm reading from the Elephant's Debt website. Yesterday afternoon, the Elephant's Debt re- released an update pertaining to questions that readers had raised about James McDonald and rumors of gambling. Since that time, several readers have offered their thoughts regarding the pictures that were posted in the original update. What's more, at least one reader has put forth a new line of questions regarding another senior member of, Har- of the Harvest staff and the practice of gambling. So here's the idea, is that the elephant's debt has uncovered evidence that, well, James McDonald, um, like I said, he likes to play um, Texas Hold'em in the casinos and at tournaments and things like that. So regarding the identity individual in the photo to the right, there's a photo that they have there, one reader identified this person as using the Twitter handle at Pocket Deuces, at Pocket Deuces. A Google search under that name has likely provided photographic confirmation of the individual in question. Without being certain, it appears that the man in the photo is Jesse Rockowitz, a professional online gambling personality who has won the World Series of Poker Tournament in 2010. According to PokerIndex.com, Mr. Rockowitz travels the world as a gambler and has has lifetime earnings of $930,648. So almost, he's, you know, career lifetime almost has won a million dollars. Additionally, in the comment section of yesterday's update, a reader directed our attention to the Global Poker Index website, uh, which lists Frederick Adams of South Elgin, Illinois, on its roster. According to the Global Poker Index, Mr. Adams has lifetime earnings of $36,920. A further review of PokerPages.com reveals the same Frederick Adams with a total earnings of 39665 Of the five tournaments that Mr. Adams attended, 
Four took place in northwest Indiana, with the most recent event occurring in July of 2012. Furthermore, a review of the whitepages.com reveals two listings under the name Fred Adams in South Illinois. One of these listings is for Fred Adams, who is the chief financial officer of Harvest Bible Chapel. While this does not conclusively prove anything, it does at least validate questions raised by numerous church members regarding issues pertaining to gambling. Now, as of 30 minutes ago, that went 30 minutes from the time they posted this, the Elephant's Debt has been advised to look into Dallas Jenkins, the director of media for Harvest Bible Chapel, according to Internet Movie Database. According to Jenkins' own blog site, Dallas Jenkins is an avid poker player and has several tournament results listed online. According to PokerPages.com, the only listing for Dallas Jenkins suggests that Mr. Jenkins has lifetime earnings of $58,961. It must be stated that the I mbd.com page does not link directly to the pokerpages.com website which means that this is not conclusive evidence that this is the same dallas jenkins this merely serves to raise questions as to whether a culture of gambling exists at harvest bible chapel at least within the echelons of their leadership members of harvest bible chapel must also ask their elders and senior pastors whether their position regarding gambling has changed since james mcdonald taught the following message entitled three enemies of triumph over treasure part one so what i'm going to do for you is play for you the, the the important segment of this sermon and just ask the question are james mcdonald's actions uh, pertaining to his um participation in high stakes expensive poker tournaments are they consistent are these actions consistent with the teaching that he believes and has put out there that as far as what the bible supposedly teaches regarding gambling i think this is an important question or is he being hypocritical let me play for you that segment. Here is James McDonald from his sermon entitled Three Enemies of Triumph Over Treasure. Did you know that 90 million Americans go to casinos every year? They spend $300 billion on gambling. That's a third more than we spend on education. That's four times the amount given to religious institutions. Why? Why, do, why all the gambling? Dishonest game, trying to make money and looking for an easy way, a shortcut. Now, gambling and lotteries to get rich quick is dishonest. Ephesians 4.28 says that let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good. The biblical way to gain income, tell me, is to what? work. Just go work. Just roll up your sleeves or focus your mind or get out there and make something or sell something or do something. That's honoring to God. And, and earning your income through hard work is it's right. And it's honoring to God. And little sneaky shortcut things. And we'll buy a few tickets here at the gas station and maybe we'll get lucky. The way to gain wealth is through work. And anything else, biblically speaking, is dishonest gain. Okay, so that's James McDonald's uh, teaching regarding gambling. He lumps all gambling into the category of dishonest gain. Well, this kind of creates a problem. 
and that is is that the chief financial officer for Har- Harvest Bible Chapel is uh, listed at pokerpages.com as having lifetime earnings of <clears throat> somewhere in the neighborhood of $36,920. Okay, now, this is a little awkward. Okay, let me continue reading, though, from the, uh, the Elephant's Debt website. The Elephant's Debt website then continues. It says, to be clear... The Bible does not explicitly condemn the practice of gambling. However, it does warn us not to be tempted by a love of money, and it likewise warns us not to attempt to get rich quickly. Given the seedy context that surrounds professional gambling, and given gambling's highly addictive nature, most Christians have historically interpreted gambling to be an unwise use of money, which in turn raises the issue of being above reproach, which, by the way, is one of the standard Requalifications for a pastor. A pastor in the church it must be above reproach. So now we got a question. So there's actually three questions posed here, and I might pose my own. So the elephant's debt asks the question: When we were, when were these pictures taken? Okay, with these you know professional poker players. Two, who is the individual standing next to McDonald in this photo that was uh, posted in the November sixth update? They're looking for who that person is. Um, is Fred Adams listed on the globalpokerindex.com that that would be the Fred Adams who serves as the chief financial officer of Harvest Bible Chapel? This is a good good question. And with with all of these allegations coming out regarding James McDonald and the folk, you know, kind of the the culture of, of uh, poker that they have going on there uh, at uh, Harvest Bible Chapel, the question I have is, um, is this really um, – how do we get to this point? I mean, serious. I mean, over and again, we've heard James McDonald literally telling people, casting vision, and telling people in Harvest Bible Chapel that they need to tithe and need to give sacrificially. All the while, he lives in a very, very expensive, I mean, you know, very large, expensive, over a million dollar home in uh, in, in Chicagoland. And now we find out that... Uh, that he, um, that that there's very serious allegations and good evidence that points to the fact that James McDonald and the chief financial officer of Harvest Bible Chapel are into, uh, well, um, poker. You know, they play Texas Hold'em. They're into tournaments. They have their they've got rankings and lifetime earnings of money and things like that. So the you know the question I have for all of this is that. Is is are James McDonald's actions consistent with what he's been teaching, or has he changed his belief? Is he changed? Is this okay? And why is it that he never really seems to answer any of these allegations? Why is it that his posture is to just remain silent? I think there's some serious, bizarre things going on within the high higher ranks of the Harvest Bible Chapel system, and um, and well, this again just proves where there's Smoke, there probably is fire. But then again, I've been trying to warn people about James McDonald for a while now, even before I was threatened with arrest. So with that, I now must introduce to you our new um, uh, James McDonald update music that we will be using from from now into the foreseeable future whenever we do a segment regarding James McDonald. Here is our new James McDonald update music. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness to 
boredom overtook us and he began to speak. He said, son, I've made a life out of reading people's faces and knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. So if you don't mind my saying, I can see you're out of aces for a taste of your whiskey. I'll give you some advice. So I handed him my bottle and he drank down my last swallow. Then he bombed a cigarette and asked me for a light. And the night got deathly quiet and his face lost all expression. Said if you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting. When the dealing's done. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the the perfect music from now on when we do a James McDonald update. In fact, I'm thinking that he needs to change his Twitter name from at James McDonald to at Pocket Pachyderms. Anyway, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian we're going to be right back with a fantastic and timely uh, chapel sermon from albert muller you don't want to miss it we'll be right back and when he finished speaking he turned back toward the window crushed out a cigarette faded off to sleep and somewhere in the darkness the gambler he broke even but in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices write down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate christian radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs okay 
We're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to put the plane down nice and easy today with a good sermon. I, good night. Some crazy things going on out there. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is actually a chapel sermon preached by Dr. Albert Muller at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. This is what I would consider to be a timely message in light of all of the events that transpired in the United States in the world of politics. And the name of Albert Muller's sermon is entitled, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, The Regal Reign of the Warrior Lamb. Just trust me when I tell you, this is the thing that'll hit the spot. You're still bruised because of how the election went. You're concerned about where the country's going. Trust me when I tell you, this will at least help a little bit. So without any further ado, I'm going to just get right to it. Here is Dr. Albert Muller, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the regal reign of the warrior lamb. What an honor to be here together. You may have noticed the world's got lots of problems. This country is marked by many problems, intractable problems. We face a political situation that appears to be incapable of dealing with these problems. And that just is a small picture of the problems of the world. We've got... Europe heading headlong into a financial crisis from which there is apparently no economic rescue. We, we see nations of the world going at war with each other. We see territorial disputes in the, in the, in the, in the Asian area that make, make no sense to us whatsoever. Nations apparently willing to go to blows over a little rock sticking out of the Pacific. None of this seems to make sense. Somebody's got to fix this. Well, I've got a plan to solve all the world problems, and I'm going to share it this morning. I have a plan for world peace, a plan that will bring an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict, bring lasting peace between North and South Korea, accomplish world peace across the globe, make peaceable nations out of Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan, solve the global economic meltdown, resolve global warming. Domestically, My plan will end the culture war, streamline government, clean up bureaucracy, cut taxes, rescue the economy, revitalize the arts, enhance national security, feed those who need feeding, clothe those who need clothing, house those who need housing, ensure personal happiness, fill every pothole. You know, it came to me one day as I was thinking about all these problems that the answer was staring me right in the face, in the mirror. I can solve all these problems. I promise you I can. Just make me king. Seriously. (laughs) 
I mean, you're hurting my feelings with your laughter. There's supposed to be overwhelming applause. The answer to all these problems was staring me at the face as I looked in the mirror. Just make me king. And by that, I don't mean some little king over some little principality or nation. I mean a global king. I mean a king who would solve these problems as I guarantee it. And I promise you, I would do it humbly. I would do it kindly. And by the way, I don't want to settle for some kind of constitutional monarchy. I mean, it would be swell to have your picture on a coin and a stamp and all that would be great. But I, And I guess life wouldn't be horrible being trotted out on state occasions like certain other constitutional monarchs we know. No, my plan only works if I'm an old-style king. I mean like an off-with-their-heads kind of king. The divine right of kings kind of king. I want to put the potency back in potentate. (laughs) You just give me the opportunity and I will solve all these problems. And I promise I would be a good king, really. I I would rule with righteousness. I would would solve the obvious problems. I I wouldn't be Henry VIII. I love the one wife I have. (laughs) No need for six. I wouldn't be Ludwig of Bavaria. I wouldn't go building all those castles and go mad and have to be drowned in a river. That's not good. That's not my plan. I would not be Ivan the Terrible. I wouldn't even be terrible. I wouldn't be Napoleon Bonaparte, but you got to say, if anyone knew how to be a king, he knew how to be a king. I mean, that guy had style. In his own coronation, he got frustrated and impatient and grabbed the crown and put it on his own head. Now, if you can crown your own head, you are king. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, I don't need a castle with hundreds and hundreds of rooms. Dozens would be fine. I wouldn't be incompetent like George III of England, I promise you. I wouldn't lose America. (laughs) I'd be a much better steward than that. No, I I have in mind the kind of monarch that historians talk about. Like, there are two words which I kind of picture after my name. The Great. (laughs) I want to be in the line of Frederick the Great or Peter the Great or I think it sounds good, Albert the Great. I like that. I, I think I would aspire to that. And, uh, and I would mean well and do well as I rule. I promise. I do well. And I'll promise you something else. After I fix everything, I don't need to be king anymore. I just need to be king long enough to fix everything. Just give me power and I'll retire. There isn't a king, an emperor, a shah. Uh, an emir, a sultan, a prince who's ever accomplished what he set out to accomplish. That's the bad news. No human king has ever been able to bring world peace or resolve these problems. No human is competent for this. Let's admit this. The reason you don't want to give me absolute power is because you've read the Bible. You've read Genesis 3 and, and you have a pretty good idea of what happens when a sinful human being gets too much power. On the other hand, both history and Scripture suggest that there are worse things than having a king. The Bible makes very clear that anarchy is worse than monarchy. Anarchy is not good. In fact, the Scripture tells us that God has given kings and governments to us, as we read in Romans chapter 13, in order to establish order. It is a gift of His grace. It is His kindness to His sinful human creatures that He gives kings to rule over us and presidents and prime ministers and governors and mayors and principals and hall monitors. Because we desperately need order. But there is within us, first of all, 
the idea that if we just did have absolute power for just even a short amount of time, we could fix these problems and then give it all back. And there's also within us the desire for a king to rule over us who would accomplish all these things, who would take care of us and lead us, who would solve our problems. You have a pretty good idea what happens when human beings aspire to kingship and get it. And history tells us of the failings and frailties of those whose heads have worn the crown. No king, no prince, no president establishes a lasting kingdom or fulfills all of our hopes. And we come to the end of the day and all the kings sleep in their tombs and all the kingdoms always fall. We must think about how to rescue ourselves from superficial understandings of Jesus. The great temptation to us is that the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus we know, the Jesus to whom we pray, the Jesus whom we trust is going to be a sentimental Jesus of our imagination and not the Jesus of the Scriptures. We desperately need to be rescued from our superficial understandings of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished and, and why it matters. We need to understand the totality of how the Scripture presents Jesus. And the church has come to understand this in many ways as Christ is revealed in the Scriptures. But one of the most essential ways is through the three offices that he holds and holds perfectly and holds eternally as prophet and priest and king. All three of these are central and crucial to the Old Testament. And all three of these he infinitely and fully fulfills. He reveals the Father to us, not merely in terms of speaking for him as God spoke through the prophets, but he is indeed the Word made flesh, and we have beheld his glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As priest, he accomplished for us the perfect sacrifice for our sin. As the high priest who was not merely a representative, but the high priest who was himself the mediator of a new covenant a covenant made in his own blood. He was not merely there as our sacrifice. He was also our substitute. And as priest, he ever liveth who intercedes for us. And the very fact that we are here and alive today is due to the fact that he is interceding for us even now. We desperately need Christ as prophet. We are here only because we know Christ as priest. But Christ is not merely priest and prophet. He is king. And in order to understand this, we have to go back to the Old Testament. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We read together, beginning of verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to rule us, to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign 
over them. So Israel demands a king. We can understand if we put ourselves in the, in the, the context, we can understand why Israel demanded a king. All the peoples around them had kings. They believed that having a king would solve their problems. The other peoples of the earth had human monarchs. They had pharaohs and princes and kings, but not Israel. Israel had judges. Its king was God, but Israel was jealous of the other nations. Israel surveyed them, and they were jealous that other nations had kings, kings that could see, they could see with their own eyes, kings they could see on a throne, kings who would promise and pledge and lead as Samuel is coming to the end of his days and his own sons. And by the way, the Scripture makes clear he should not have appointed his own sons as judges, but he did. And as Samuel now comes to the end of his life, the elders of Israel come to him and they demand a king. And God says to to Samuel the most amazing thing. He says, obey the voice of the people. They're not rejecting you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And then at the end of this text, we read at verse 9 where God says to Samuel, you tell them, however, if they ask for a king, they better be very, very careful what they ask for. That's what he's saying there. Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and all your vineyards and and of your vineyards and, and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And on that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And look amazingly what follows. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us And go out before us and fight our battles. The candor of this text is remarkable. Here here is Samuel saying, as the Lord speaks through him, Okay, you want a king? Let me tell you, if you want a king, you're going to get a king. And when you have a king, here's what kings do. They take your sons and they send them to war. They take your daughters, and I realize this is a different culture, and make them perfumers and cooks. He'll take your sons And when you have a king, he's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your servants and he's going to take your, your animals. He's going to take the tithe. He's going to take taxes. And when you have a king, you're not going to want a king, but you demand a king. And Israel cried out nonetheless to Samuel, we will have a king. No, but there shall be a king over us. A little historical context here is very important as well. They were looking at the other nations and demanding a king. We need to be really clear. They weren't looking at, at Versailles. They weren't looking at the Kremlin. They were looking at the most ten pin monarchies in human history. Little tiny villages and, and towns that had kings over them. They weren't much of a king. But in spite of that, Israel did not want the Lord God as its king wanted a king it could see, a king that sits on a throne. Samuel was very honest about what that looks like. And as you read the Old Testament, you know how the story goes. It doesn't go well. 
Some time ago, I was walking across the, the seminary campus, and a, a young man came up to me. And uh, he obviously had something he wanted to share. And, uh, and he had an eagerness about him that I knew as he was walking to me, he was going to tell me something or he was going to show me something. And he both told me and he showed me. He had an ultrasound image of his soon-to-be-born son. He just found out it was a son. He was bubbling over with excitement. He showed me the picture. I acted as if I could understand it. I did know that it was a precious unborn child. He showed me that it was a boy. And then he said, we're going to name him a biblical name. I said, that's good. What are you thinking? He said, well, I'd like to name him after one of the kings of Israel. I said, wow, you better be careful there. <laughs> I mean, most of those names are not names of honor. There are a few in there, but there are very, very few in there. You think about all the names that you can name your son. You don't want to name him Ahab or Manasseh or Jeroboam or Jehoiakim. You don't, you don't want to go near those names. And, even the, and, and there are precious few good names. Josiah, Hezekiah, David. But, but there are a lot of names that just just not even... Well, they're just awkward, like Solomon. The truth is, when Israel got kings, and when then Israel and Judah had kings, the kings didn't go so well. Everything that, that Samuel here warned Israel about when, when it came to kings, everything happened, and worse. You know, in the midst of Israel's experience... In the midst of the failures of all of Israel's kings, God told them there would be another king coming. We think of Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a son is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Israel wasn't asking for this king when, they, when Israel's elders went to Samuel and said, give us a king, we will have a king, we must have a king to rule over us. But God in his mercy, after his people had plenty of experience with the kings they demanded, said, I am sending you a king, I am promising you a king, there is yet a coming king. And as you look to David's throne and to David's line, and one day there will be a Messiah king who sits upon that throne, and of his government there will be no limitation. I will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His throne names will be Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is one who is infinitely greater than David. The government will be upon his shoulder. Those throne names were never spoken of David nor of any other human king. When Jesus Christ was born in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Magi who came said, Where shall we find this baby who is born king 
of the Jews. Jesus spoke of himself as a king. He made very clear that even as his kingdom had come with him and that in his coming the kingdom of God is at hand, when you speak of my kingdom, he said, you make very clear that you speak of me as king. He made very clear throughout his incarnation that his kingdom is yet not of this world. In John chapter 18, verse 26, he replies to his accuser, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is at hand. But you can't reduce it to an earthly kingdom. You can't fit this monarchy into your human conception. Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross that had atop it a sign that said King of the Jews because Pilate instructed that it be so. And the Jews came to Pilate and said, say instead he claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate said, it is written as it is written. Jesus spoke over and over again of his kingdom, of the kingdom of God. He made very clear that it was not ruled simply as an earthly kingdom is ruled. It is not regulated simply as human kingdoms are regulated. It is not evaluated as human kingdoms are evaluated. When we think of Jesus as king, we're not thinking of an earthly king blown up large or an earthly king made complete. We're talking about God's definitive answer and bringing about his rule of who is really king. And his name is Jesus. Now, most Christians who know anything of the Bible, who've read the Gospels and know anything of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, know that he is king. But they generally do not know what kind of king he is. Jesus shall reign. We sing it. But do we understand what it means? I fear that even as most Christians have a very superficial understanding of Jesus, even in thinking of Jesus as king we often have a very domesticated understanding of what that means. For a biblical corrective, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we begin reading at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. But I'm going to assume that this was not the text chosen for fourth grade Sunday school on Sunday morning. Okay, children, let's gather together for Sunday school. Here are the coloring pages for today's Sunday school lesson. Those are birds pecking out the eyeballs of kings. Color inside the lines. You want to show your parents you did a good job in Sunday school. Come let me tell you a story about Jesus. 
He's riding a horse. He's got blood all over his clothes. He's coming and he's not happy. No, that's not what four-year-olds had in Sunday school. It's what we have in the inerrant and fallible Word of God. It is a picture of a sure and certain coming day. And it is a picture filled with awe, and it is a picture centered on a king. Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens... Two of the four horsemen of the new atheism, Richard Dawkins still living, Christopher Hitchens now dead. They, along with Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett, have really pioneered this movement that reinvigorated atheism in the last part of the 20th and especially in the early years of the 21st century. And, you know, sometimes you need to read the opposition in order to understand the truth that's right before you. Some evangelicals would do well to read what Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens have to say because one of their central arguments is this. They say that modern liberals, especially modern liberal Christians, often suggest, and you've heard this certainly, that in the Old Testament you've got a vengeful, monarchical, judgmental, intolerant, killer God, where in the New Testament you've got sweet Jesus. And Dawkins and Hitchens, both in their own book, said this, the people who make those arguments evidently actually haven't read the New Testament. Because if you think Jesus is the sweet answer to that judgmental God of the Old Testament, then you've not read Revelation chapter 19. Because here we've got kings and captains with their eyeballs and their flesh being picked off by birds after they have been slain by none other than Jesus Christ. Well, we understand the story. We put this in the context of the gospel. We understand what this story means and why it is necessary. And any theology that presents a vengeful, judgmental God of the Old Testament versus the sweet Jesus of the New Testament doesn't understand either God's revelation of himself in Scripture nor what it means for Jesus to be king. We don't understand the scale of the human rebellion with which he has... He has been faced and will now judge. You do not understand what took place in Eden, and you do not understand what took place in human history, and you sure don't understand what takes place in your own heart. A rebellion against the sovereign creator. A rebellion against the heavenly king. We are all guilty of infinite treason. And if you think that God and his holiness is going to let history dribble out to its own end with his enemies having the last word, you haven't read the scriptures and you don't know God. Because there is a last word, and we don't have it. You come to Revelation chapter 19, and let's face it, you just look to each other, and you see each other in the face, and admit this is tough stuff. Much of the imagery we find here in Revelation chapter 19 is already revealed in Revelation chapter 1. Here we have the Jesus who appeared to John in his vision, and we have John writing down what he is told to write. And by the inspiration of God, this is the inerrant and infallible word he has spoken to us, and he has told us that when Jesus comes, well, when Jesus comes, he's going to be revealed fully as king. This is that day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that Jesus Christ is king. When we have that great testimony to Jesus as high priest in the book of Hebrews, we are told that this priest, the mediator of a new and better covenant, is coming a second time, not with reference to sin, 
but rather to claim his church and to rule and to reign. He's going to pour out the wrath of God upon, upon sin. Jesus does not step out of the way and merely observe as the Father pours out his wrath upon sin. Jesus is not only the agent of redemption, according to Scripture, he is also the agent of the Father's judgment upon sin. And there's no text that so classically reveals this as does Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open. Heaven is opening and there is an army coming. And behold, the one who is leading this army is riding a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And you already know this is Jesus. And in righteousness, what does he say? Why did Jesus come? Why is Jesus coming? Did anyone ever tell you that he's coming to judge and to make war? His eyes are like a flame of fire, symbols of judgment, and on his head are diadems. You know what a king looks like? Imagine a procession that starts out with heaven opening. One crown won't do. Many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. As you read the letter to the church, John says to the one who overcomes, I will give him a name, a secret name, known only to him and to myself. And so what is given to believers who overcome and endure to the end, they were given this secret name, not only known to themselves, but known to Christ. And when Christ comes as the agent of the judgment of the Father, he comes with a name only he knows. We don't know what it is. And by the time you come to hear that name, it's too late. This is a name that's going to be disclosed to the enemies of Christ as he is destroying them. This isn't Sunday school for four-year-olds. This is the word of God to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to tell us that the Jesus who is coming will exact and enact the judgment of the Father. This is the judge, the king, who is coming with his robe already blooded. And how did that happen? When he was on the cross, he wears bloody garments as he returns The name by which he is called is the word of God, Logos. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. They are riding on white horses. They are wearing... They are wearing the symbols of royalty. They are riding the chargers of royalty. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, just as we saw in Revelation chapter 1. This is judgment coming from the very mouth of the Savior. He comes with a sharp sword, a terrible, swift sword. There is no dull place on it. He comes to exact justice with the sword that is in his mouth. It is the sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. A statement of absolute unconditional sovereignty. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. When the first time, for the first time I was in the land called the Holy Land, I saw a winepress and I saw it in operation. And I saw the the grapes put into the trough and then I saw the stone rolled over it and then I saw the oozing, flooding juice that came out from those grapes and the biblical imagery of the judgment of God in the wine press became very clear to me as I imagine it is not on that day going to be grapes that are crushed but rebellious humans. And what flows from that trough will not be juice but blood. When in a time of war, a king on a charger would come up to his enemy, his thigh would be that which is most apparent, and written on his thigh is the insignia. The insignia of this king is none other than the king of kings and lord of lords. This is a terrible picture. 
When you hear and read these words, a certain tinge of horror enters into our heart. But the text doesn't end there. There's more. There's an angel who appears standing in the sun, radiance behind him, and with a loud voice he calls out, To whom? To all the birds. These are birds of prey. The scavengers as well who fly directly overhead. Come gather. They are invited now to gather. They are summoned to gather. And for what? For the great supper of God. This is the second great supper of the book of Revelation, the great supper of God. These birds are called to observe, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. But it's not just that. The flesh of every single human being, sinful human being who never comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who never has sins forgiven, who remains to the end rebel against the Lord Most High. The flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave or free. All the, rebel, re, the rebels, all of those who are opposed to God, all who obstinately defy him to the end are destroyed. And then John says, I saw the beast the one who so consummately represents opposition to the sovereignty of God and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet, he too who in the presence, in its presence had done his sign, who had deceived those who had the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown into the lake of the fire that burns with sulfur. It will reappear very quickly in the judgment that is coming to all. This lake of fire because everyone whose name is not written in the book of life is thrown into this fire. Kings, captains, mighty men, slave, free, great, small. And the rest are slain by the sword. It came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Jesus will reign. Jesus is king. And all this royal imagery is a reminder to us that God will vindicate his name and will demonstrate his holiness and will satisfy his righteousness. He will pour out his wrath against scoffers, deniers, unbelievers, enemies of the cross, persecutors of the faithful, those who murdered the martyrs, the subverters of his truth, those who attacked and rejected his church, those who perverted his gospel and seduced his people, the devil, Satan, demons, the beast, all these will be destroyed. The enemies of God are destroyed, but not only they, also the small as well as the great. The victory of God in Christ, his victory over sin and death and the curse will be fully revealed and all will be defeated. There will be war. And the king is the one who rides a horse, who comes to judge and to make war. And all of this tells us that history is not headed to some indefinite end, but under the sovereignty of God is headed to this. And it's horrifying. This supper is beyond our imagination. Its horror is beyond our linguistic ability. We simply cannot imagine how horrible it will be, not only on this day, but for eternity to know the reality of this awful banquet in which the birds are summoned to eat the flesh of kings, but not only the kings, not only the great, but also the small This is the second banquet. Thanks be to God, there is a first. Look earlier in this very chapter to verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Brothers and sisters, every single human being now alive who will ever live or who ever lived will one day be at one of these two meals. Revelation 19 is the story of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and of two banquets, of two meals, and we will either be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb or we will be the food for the prey in the great banquet of God. The Bible makes very clear there are two and only two destinies. There are two and only two states of the divine disposition towards his human creatures. There are two and only two meals. And only by the grace of God, only by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as priest, only by the gospel that he reveals to us as prophet, and only by the victory that he has won for us as king, do we, by faith, have our sins forgiven the righteousness of the Son imputed to us and the invitation changed from the supper of the birds feasting on the great and small to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are here and we are alive today. We are redeemed solely because Jesus Christ is our great high priest. We know these things only because God the Father has revealed them to us in the Son. And we are assured of these things only because Jesus Christ is King, King of kings and Lord of lords, with a sword from his mouth who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And thus, God's righteousness is demonstrated. And thus, by that same power, we are saved. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are so thankful that the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world is none other than our sure and coming King. Father, we pray that we will, as His people, be ready for that King when He comes. And Father, we pray with unspeakable gratitude for the truth revealed to us even in this Word that by Your grace we may be at the marriage supper of the Lamb rather than that banquet of the birds feeding on kings. Father, Israel demanded a king, but the wrong king. Father, we sometimes feel as if we do not need a king when we were only saved by a king. Father, we are here even now to worship. And as I end to pray in the name of he who alone is prophet and priest and king, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.
So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Actually click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian till Monday. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.